welcome to Creative Piecemeal Podcast, a podcast for creatives. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi. Join me for compelling conversations with artists, actors, authors, musicians, and other creatives about the impact of the creative and fine arts in their lives and our ever-changing world. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another episode of Creative Piecemeal. I'm your host, Tammy, and today I'm joined by Grammy Award-winning jazz bassist, Dr. Todd Coleman. He's one of the most sought-after musicians on the New York music scene and has played with a number, uh, played and recorded with a number of jazz artists, including Horace Silver, Stan Getz, Gary Mulligan, Benny Golson, Ahmed Jamal, Art Farmer, J.J. Johnson, the Carnegie Hall Jazz Band, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, and others. He has also had faculty positions, including posts in jazz programs at SUNY Purchase and Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. He also enjoys fly fishing, bird watching, hiking, and generally communing with the natural world. Thank you so much for joining on the show today. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Tammy, for inviting me. And listeners, for those of you who may not know, Todd Coleman has a podcast called The Cool Toddcast, and he had recently invited me to be on the show, his show, to discuss music therapy and podcasting. By the way, we, we got quite a few uh, hits on that. It seemed to be a popular subject. Oh, nice. That's always good. So we're going to get started with who or what inspired you to become a musician and why did you choose the bass? I'll answer the, the second part first. When I entered, I think, junior high school, and this is some years ago now, they gave all the students what they called a musical aptitude test. And it was it was on a real, real tape recorder. And it was the most idiotic test of all time. You know, they would say, like, what pitch is higher? Or what rhythm is faster? This one or this one? <laughs> you know? And and uh, so I didn't find it too hard. I wound up scoring 100 on the test. So I thought I wanted to play a musical instrument, and I wanted to be in the marching band and, and play the tenor saxophone. And they wouldn't let me because I scored too high on the test. So they said I had to be in the orchestra, which meant to play a stringed instrument. The, the theory was is that stringed instruments were a little... Uh, more challenging to get proficient at at that age in a hurry. So they took me in a room and showed me the violin, the viola, the cello, and the bass. And I was just drawn to the bass, I think, because of its size and because uh, I liked getting attention in those days. And I thought that would be my ticket. So, And then my teacher came up to me before I even shows, and he said, show me your hand. And I went like this. He said, I think you're going to play the bass. He said, with mitts like that, you should be a bass player. So I just said, okay. So that's how I got introduced to the instrument. But what inspired me to play was several things. I, I was lucky enough to arrange in my last year of high school. Uh, I lived about a, a one-hour train ride from downtown Chicago. And somehow or another, we talked my school into letting me out on Wednesdays at noon 
And I would take the train to Chicago and get a lesson with the principal bassist in the Chicago Symphony. His name was Joe Guastafesti. And uh, that would be in the later afternoon. Then he would give me a ticket to the concert that night of the Chicago Symphony. And I would go next door to a little diner and get my little grilled cheese and my cherry Coke and then go back to the concert. And on a weekly basis, I got to hear the Chicago Symphony perform the greatest literature ever written for a symphony orchestra. And so that in itself was inspiring. But really got me was I had a local teacher who had uh, been teaching me classical technique and stuff. And one day he brought a record with him, an LP, and said, there's a bass player on this record that plays a, a different kind of way than we do. And he said, I thought you might like to hear it and see another way the bass can be played. So the record was a record called the Oscar Peterson Trio Night Train. And it had uh, Oscar Peterson with, the bassist was Ray Brown. The drummer was Ed Thigpen. I put that record on and it, it changed my life. I, I, it's the first time I'd ever heard music like that. And hearing the bass, the sound that Ray got, the feeling that he produced on the instrument, everything about it, I just, I, I was completely in awe immediately. And I, I remember after hearing about two minutes of it, I just said, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. And it was transformative. It was that simple. Such a wonderful origin story of how things came to be. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, you know, it was just uh, serendipity. And I, I fortunately, I had a teacher who had the wherewithal, the wisdom and the, and the breadth of knowledge to say, I want to expose this student to as much as I can. So shortly after that, I had some, uh, there were some uh, older music teachers in, 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 you know, older than me. I was like 15. In other words, adults who actually asked my parents permission to let me go along with them to Chicago to hear jazz in person. So the first performance I heard of live jazz was Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, wow. Can't beat that. <laughs> The thing I could hardly understand about it, like I didn't understand the music at all, although I knew it made me feel good. I came from uh, Gary, Indiana, which was a steel town, a, a factory town. So it was typically full of people who were lab laborers who did really hard, back-breaking work day in and day out. And most of the men that I knew, including my maybe my dad and others, his friends, they really didn't like work. You know, it wasn't fun. And then I went and saw Dizzy Gillespie, and I saw all the guys on the bandstand having fun. And I couldn't uh, equate that with work. I, I thought, well, they're not working, are they? I mean, if they're working, they should be, like, tortured and unhappy. But um, so I wanted to go back the next week. So I went back the next week, and I heard this gentleman named Ornette Coleman, who was, a, who was at the time, he's a very avant-garde like what they called free jazz. I mean, it sounded completely like five men in an insane asylum, you know, at least to me at the time. And then the third week I went and I heard the Bill Evans trio. Bill Evans was a completely unique voice. Uh, I would say that in the broadest sense, his music sounded like impressionistic. So I had heard three weeks in a row, I had heard like bebop, which was like the, you know, the, the music that Dizzy helped invent was like straight-ahead jazz, swinging jazz. The next week I heard total cacophony, at least to my ears at the time, total freedom, 
and the third week impressionism and and pictures and pastoral streams and mountains and things and it was just mind-blowing and and on the way back i asked my friends i said i have a question which one of those was jazz and they cracked up because it was all jazz but to me they were three different things uh because i couldn't hear the threads i couldn't hear the foundational things that were present in all of those presentations to me it it seemed like one of them probably was jazz and the other two were something else but that really intrigued me and i started collecting records at that point and and playing along with the records trying to pick out the notes that's really neat do you still have some of those records oh yeah absolutely i have all of them i i could never part with them the, 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 this is something that a lot of people don't really understand today the idea of having just enough money to buy one LP maybe per month and going there and getting this LP and and reading the liner notes on the back that described what I was about to hear and looking at the beautiful photography on the front and the the images of, of the musicians and then pulling the record out, the LP, and smelling the vinyl, that's that unique smell and looking at the record label, then putting it on the turn. I mean, to me, it was a whole ritual, and it was a, a, a total experience. And then the idea of sitting down and purposely listening to music with undivided attention. Each side held roughly 42 minutes of music. So I would put one side on and sit in front of the speakers and just listen. No cell phones. No texting, no distractions, no computers for that matter. Then turn the record over, put it on, and listen to that side. And and just take it all in. And, you know, I don't know if it's going to sound silly, but uh, I have a great affection for my LPs. They they really mean something to me. They, they, they all represent, each one represents a stage of my development, a stage of my evolution. They're like time capsules. Mm-hmm. of what I was doing, where I was, what I was thinking when I bought that Freddie Hubbard record, what it was like when I heard my first Miles Davis record, what it was like standing in the record store and looking through hundreds of LPs and trying somehow to figure out which one is the best one for me. I only have $4, and I can only afford one of these a month. I've got to pick a good one. I can't pick a bad one because it's a waste, and I'll lose a month. So it's fun. it's a really neat question because I'm not sure that people, other than those my peers, would immediately understand what I'm talking about. But I don't think the guy on the street has ever given it much thought unless unless he or she has collected LPs back in the day, you know. But uh, I w- I could never part with them. Yeah, you know, they take up a lot of space. They weigh a ton. God forbid I ever have to move. But you know what? I, I just put them in uh, orange crates and muscle up and move them, and it's well worth it. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting because nowadays music is so easily accessible. You don't have to make choices. You know, you're bombarded with it via finding things on YouTube and Spotify or iTunes or and and you don't have to shell out your hard earned money and take a chance. You don't have to make a decision. And then people are distracted, like you said. Well, it's completely different today. 
And uh, the thing that I think people are perhaps missing, we called them record albums. And, and the reason they were called albums was because the, the thinking was that all of the music on the album was a collection or a collage of a, a certain aesthetic. We have photo albums, right? We used to have photo albums. So we'd have one of the family. That was one photo album. We had one of the vacation. We had one of like school and graduations. Photo albums that were like thematic. And a lot of these records were, were conceived of that way. Nowadays, you put on a piece of music and uh, it, it's kind of out of context. And, and also, what, what is really distressing to me, certainly I, maybe because I'm a musician, uh, nobody knows who they're listening to. They know that they're listening to uh, Brianna, but they have no idea who's behind Brianna making all the music happen. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they don't even want to know. I, I one time won tickets to a performance because I was able to call into a jazz radio station and identify all the players on the record they played. They played a record. I said, oh, that's Gene Ammons on tenor. That's Bobby Timmons on piano. You know, that's so-and-so on bass and et cetera. Oh, you win. You got them all right. So I guess for me, it's uh, these kind of issues are deeply personal, and they, they, they really have everything to do with everything I do every day. To this day, they're, they're part of whatever I'm able to produce. Mm-hmm. And that's fantastic. You know, I, I wish I grew up in an era where I had collected music in such fashion. I mean, I touched on it a little bit in, in my life because, you know, save money to get like a CD, you know, oh, before, before the yeah. MP3 area. But, you know, then I, as I got to high school and college, you know, music again was way more accessible. So I didn't get to go through that beautiful struggle that you went through. You know, there's, there's always two sides to the coin. So, Yes, I, I fully appreciate my relationship with that era. But at the same time, if at that time I could have had access to the music that, we, you know, if I could have like downloaded any and every, you know, tens of thousands of examples, that would have been nice too. So there's, there's something to that. Uh, I try to see the positive aspects of, of these things. But I suppose I also came into, into contact with that phenomena through teaching, because a student would come to me with a recording that they were excited about. If they were, say, a saxophone player, they'd say, listen to this saxophone player. And I'd say, that's great. I'd say, by the way, who's the piano player? Lights out. Blanks. Crickets. Well, who's the drummer? And and these were people that could have been, like, historically quite significant, mm-hmm. and yet had no no clue. And that's, I mean, I'm glad that I know, and I wish that they knew. And I hope that they know, and I always try to express to them the importance of knowing. Uh, but I, be- I firmly believe in teaching. Uh, my role was to lead horses to water. Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't want this stuff, don't mess with it. Like, find something you're really passionate about. Yeah. And it's wonderful that even though you came to base sort of serendipitously, that you just, you, you fell headfirst in love and you found jazz, you know, and, and you've done so well with it. You know. If you've been feeling burned out, stressed, overwhelmed, or exhausted, the 
resources, and courses at the Self-Care Institute are here to support you. The Self-Care Institute was founded by Dr. Ami Kunimura and provides support for individuals and organizations with burnout prevention, burnout recovery, and stress management. I've personally taken a few of these courses and found them to be super helpful, both professionally and personally. The care you give yourself matters just as much as the care you give to others. But if self-care is difficult for you, you're not alone. And the Self-Care Institute is here to support your well-being, resilience, and sense of fulfillment at work and at home. For more information, visit selfcareinstitute.com or go to the show notes and click on the link. Yeah, it's, uh, I wonder, you know, I often wonder uh, what would have happened uh, had that not happened, for example, or what if they would have said, okay, well, you can be in the band and you can play tenor saxophone. Like, there's no way of knowing where that might have or might not have led. Mm-hmm. I might have done that for a couple of years and said, boy, music stinks. I hate this, you know. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to try something else. So, uh, you know, I suppose a fate played a role in it and uh i suppose to enjoy the the uh, you know as a professional person in any trade i do believe that you you have to have some good fortune it, you know talent alone generally won't do it and all the other elements that go into it in and of themselves don't really avail yourself the the full opportunities and you have to you know for good fortune being in the right place at the right time Having other things happen accidentally, you know, getting called for a job because the other bass player, unfortunately, was fixing his gutter that afternoon and fell off his ladder and broke his leg. And so you get a call from someone you never worked with before and you show up and they like your playing. Boom. Mm-hmm. Opportunity knocking. And that and that's accidental. Uh, the key in my profession is to be prepared. Preparation is 90% of it, in my opinion. Very true, because you never know when opportunity is going to knock and you've got to have your audition pieces ready and you have to have your repertoire ready and and whatever else you need. Well, yes. And in in my profession, uh, every night I play is an audition. You know, just because I've been with a band for like a year doesn't mean if if I start taking it for granted, they won't want me around anymore. They'll want somebody who's eager to participate and willing to contribute. If I go up there and go through the motions, they'll get tired of that. So I've got to take my A game every night, or at least try, because I'm auditioning for the privilege of coming back tomorrow and playing with them again. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. They don't owe me anything. And that's a, such a wonderful way of looking at it, too, you know, of looking at music, of looking at sharing in music with others, that it's a privilege to, to be there each time. And I think it's hard for people sometimes to remember that. One thing that helps me remember it is that my father lied about my age so that I could get jobs in the summer in the steel mills in Gary, Indiana, as a laborer. And I can tell you, at least from my experience, that was just god-awful work. Just back-breaking, mindless, unrewarding work. And so maybe the fact that I know what I don't want to do helps me focus on what I do want to do with maybe a little more passion. Mm-hmm. I, it's amazing to me in recent years, you know, uh, students, of course, I was running a jazz program at a college for a while and uh, 
naturally they would come to me in the spring and say, look, um, next fall the tuition's going up. You know, I'm from out of state and I'm, you know, I'm kind of concerned. I don't know if I can come back. I can't quite afford it. Uh, can you help me with a scholarship, you know, could, could you increase my scholarship or whatever? And I would say, well, let's see what we can do. Uh, what what job are you going to be doing this summer? How much can you earn? They would look at me like with blank faces. Job? Job? I don't, I'm not doing a job. I'm just going to stay home and practice and it's summer. I'm off. And it would baffle me. And I would just say, look, I can't help you if you can't help you. You know, you bring some dollars to the table and I'll see what I can do. And that seemed foreign to some of the students I worked with. Baffled me. Of course, times are way different. But when I worked a full summer in the steel mill, I made enough money to pay tuition for the following year. You know, that old cliche, I worked my way through college. That's what I did. Yeah, definitely different nowadays. Well, it is because college is obscenely expensive. There's, there's no good reason for that, by the way, in my opinion. They, there's some fundamental changes that, that would need to be made in how a college is made and administered to make it affordable. Mm -hmm. There's several ways they could, they could cut costs with eliminating needless personnel, and that alone would lower tuition by half. Mm -hmm. You've taught in various universities, and you've got so much experience there, and you've played in, in groups and bands. Do you feel that your life in the creative arts has turned out the way you expected, or is it right on track? That's a great question. Um, I would say, it, no, it, it's turned out so much better than I could have dreamed, much less expected. Uh, that Those tickets I told you about that I won in a call-in contest, mm -hmm. they were tickets to a, a taping of a TV show called Just Jazz. I'll tell you who, who was in the show that I got to see and hear. These names will mean something to people that know jazz and maybe not to others, but I'll just say they were all living legends. Mm. So I, I can see it in my head now. Uh, Al Haig played piano, Ray Brown on bass, Kenny Clark on drums, Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet, James Moody on saxophone, Sarah Vaughn singing, Milt Jackson on vibes, and Joe Carroll singing. It was like the heaviest all-star group of the day. And I'm in this studio listening and watching. And I absolutely said to myself, God, what would it be like to play with them? And then I thought, well, what a, what a great fantasy, because I'll never know. And I wound up playing with almost all of them. So, yes, I mean, my performance experience has been a dream that I could not even dare have dreamed, even. I've, I've circumnavigated the world several times, playing with all kinds of bands in all kinds of countries and environments, gotten to see the world. It would be very easy for me to tell you where I haven't been, you know, rather than where I have been. So that alone and the education that goes with that is astounding. And then uh, I never had any desire to teach, ever. That was not, not in my plan at all. Uh, and it just happened by, a, a, I was performing in New York City and a, a guy who ran summer workshops came up to me and asked, if I'd like to teach at them. He said, have you ever taught before? I said, no. <laughs> he said, would you like to try? <laughs> and I said, sure. Because at that time in my career, he was offering me six weeks of work that paid money, that was going to pay my rent. 
and I had the time free because I had just arrived in New York, so I didn't really have a lot of work. So anybody offering me a job, the answer was yes. So here's this guy I never heard of. Come out with me for six weeks, and we'll do six workshops in six different cities across the United States, and you can be the bass teacher. Okay. There I was, like, like, just like throwing an infant into, a, into an Olympic-sized pool. And I just had to use my wits. But as time went on, as I started doing more of that kind of stuff, I found that it was enjoyable. And I, I flattered myself in thinking that I had something to offer. And out of that, I developed a very long-term and rewarding academic career that I have uh, retired from. So I was in academia for 40 years. And that I had no plan to do that. I didn't foresee that. I wanted to be Joe bass player. Just go up there and play bass with people. That, that's, that was my goal. And it didn't matter who much less legendary musicians. I just wanted to play the bass. I just didn't want to work in a steel mill. Yeah, yeah. So your, to your question, this is a dream I dared not dream. Seemed to, if I had, I would have thought it's impossible. Pure fantasy. So am I fortunate? Do I have gratitude? My gratitude would fill half the state I live in. It's, it's unbelievable. And that's wonderful. And it's so great to hear that when, when people have such a passion for what they do and such an appreciation for it, it's, it's hard to be a musician in any capacity you know, and, and to be able to approach it with such humility and passion and gratitude is, is just wonderful. It's inspiring. Yeah, being a musician is challenging, but I like to point this out to people. I mean, you know, you're right. You're right. There's a lot of challenges, and, and not the least of which are the ups and downs, which can be radical. Mm-hmm. Way down one day, way up the next, and those swings are very hard to manage at times. I'm an early bird these days, right? I get up kind of early now, and I see these people with their three-piece suits and their briefcases climbing into their cars at 6 in the morning, getting into the traffic jam to go to the office to do whatever they do. I see them get home at 6, looking like they've been pulled through a knot hole, and I think to myself, now that's hard. Mm -hmm. So you're right. Being in the arts presents multiple challenges on many fronts. But I think just about anything has its own set of challenges. And uh, I think maybe what we do is we, my mother used to say, pick your poison, you know. (laughs) So I think sometimes knowing what doesn't appeal to you helps you find those things which are more appealing. And that can be useful. You know, having a horrible job, right, can be really useful. You know, it teach, and also it can help you appreciate rather than to look down on people that do those jobs. Mm-hmm. If I walk into a Seven Eleven, I'm not looking at that cashier like he or she doesn't matter, or that they're there at my behest, or that they don't have problems, or that they don't have a family, or that maybe that's their third job. I can appreciate being on that side of the counter, mm-hmm. and so I I can't possibly condescend in that I, I, I have to understand and appreciate that they may not be there because they want to be. They probably did not aspire to be a cashier, but they're doing what they have to do and they're doing it professionally. Uh, and I have to admire that rather than to kind of classify it. I'm reminded of a joke I like to tell it about the, the old guy at the circus that uh, his job is to follow the elephants with the bucket and the shovel, you know? 
and follows him and cleans up after him, and he's been doing it for 55 years. And finally, I couldn't help it. I asked the guy, I said, Listen, Mister, I said, I got to ask you, aren't you tired of this job? Don't you want to quit? And he looked puzzled. He says, what, and give up show business? <laughs> so, you know, a lot of, lot of things in life, I think, have to do with how we choose to see them. You know, reality is a human construct. So my reality is pretty much whatever I'm going to make it, I think. I don't know. But uh, I, I will say this. Whatever I've learned, now I'm, I'm 67 years old now. It's taken me that long to learn it. Usually all the good lessons take us a while, huh? Yeah, that has been the case for me. Well, you know, younger people, especially, you know, I'm, I'm most familiar with, with college-age people. They tend to be very self-centered. And, and, and I think that is as it should be, you know, at that stage in their life. They're really thinking about themselves and their development and their interests and their likes and dislikes. I never really put them down for that, but I could see the the limit to their perspective, and I could project and say, well, hopefully, when they when they get a little more experience in the real world and grow up a little bit, they'll see, you know. So I might say, you know, you might want to think about doing this, and they might not want to consider that right now because it's not the time, it's not what they want to hear, and I I understand that, and I would just say, okay, well. Do it your way, you know, and see what happens, see how it works out. Some of my best uh, experiences have become a result of my worst nightmares. Sometimes that's just, you know, you have to get burned sometimes to understand that the oven is hot. You know, we all went through that. That's how we learn. It's the, it's the most basic learning mechanism in man is mistake making. I've learned that too, and I've learned to, to use my mistakes that way. As a learning tool, not as a thrashing tool or a self-deprecating tool. So, I don't know, I guess at this stage of my life, I just feel that if I had to describe, I just have to say I'm a bit more tolerant, more willing to just let things be. Yeah, and that's an important thing to learn and be able to do. I know it's it's hard for, for many people for a variety of aspects. Or people can let some things be, but are really stuck on others, you know. Oh, of course. Well, you know, uh, we all have a path to, you know, tread. It's kind of funny. My wife and I were talking about it the other night, and we came to the conclusion that although we feel that we might have some good advice to offer others based upon our experience, that we, we will offer it if people ask. But if they're not asking, I'm not offering because they may not want to hear my advice. And how do I know it's any good anyway? So I just kind of sit still. If somebody is seeking help, I'm, I'm happy to offer it. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that about advice, because sometimes I ask guests, what is a piece of advice you would have told your younger self? Do wow. you have anything to share? Sure. Uh, that could be a whole show. So I, I'm not, <laughs> yeah, you know. Just one, Todd. Just yeah, one. <laughs> that's tough. Now the question's really hard. But you know what? I think it would be, listen, listen. Mm. You know, and, and somebody pointed out to me that the, the word listen, if you rearrange the letters, it spells the word silent. And if you just listen, it takes humility. And if you listen, you can learn a lot of valuable things or even learn what, you know, what not to do mm -hmm. or what not to think or what advice to follow or not follow. But the more I listen, the more... I don't know, it makes me feel more stable, and it also helps me get out of myself, because, of course, musicians and artists in general can, at times, be very self-centered. And that's not always a bad thing, because sometimes it creates great art, but um, 
you know, I find that the older I get, I'm more interested in other people and just listening to them and, and then seeing, trying to identify with them. You know, so listen to a plumber talk, you know, if a plumber comes to my house, just have a conversation with him and, and find out about his world or hers. Anyway, that's the best I can answer your, like with one answer to your question. My advice would be, Todd, be quiet, be silent, and listen. It's good advice. It really is. Well, no charge. <laughs> that one's free. The next one, not so much. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so getting back a little bit more to jazz, you know, now that you're retired, have you ever thought about dabbling in any other creative arts? Well, uh, that's a good question. Now, I want to clarify. I, I'm not retired from playing or being a jazz musician. I, I did retire from academia, per se. But other endeavors, other artistic endeavors, I will make a long story short, but through a chain, again, a serendipitous chain of events, I got a phone call one day from a, mo a woman who had a, a nine-year-old daughter who was interested in playing the bass. Now, nowadays, they have these basses that are like scaled down, like little eighth-size versions of basses, so that kids can be involved, you know, at a young age. And I said, um, I said, I have to be honest with you, I said, I've never taught children in any context. I said, I've always taught at the college level. I'd have to really rethink like how to go about my business. I said, I'll tell you what, make you a deal. Let's try it. And if either your daughter or you or I find that it's not going to work out, no harm done, no fault, and I will find you the right teacher. And so that was our agreement. And all I can say is that teaching young children has just been an absolute gas. Mm. Just so fun, so rewarding, because children are involved in music just because either they find it fun and or their parents realize that it's crucial to their intellectual development. There's a lot of science on that fact. And so they're not aspiring to play at Carnegie Hall. So it's a whole different mindset, and they want to have fun. And I feel like I can help them have fun and at the same time learn some valuable stuff through the study of music, life lessons, intellectual development, analytical processes, reasoning, dealing with defeat, dealing with success, all of these analogous life lessons that come out of it, and it has been a blast. So artistically, if you will, I've been trying to develop curricula for little kids because I'm, I'm learning. Every time I teach one of them, I, I learn something, and I, I'm learning that they really tick differently than college students and, and uh, it's a whole different ball of wax. So in that regard, yes, I've been interested in that. Uh, I've been interested in, in things that involve the natural world because um, one thing about playing music for a living or, or teaching at a college is it's all, basically it's all indoors. It's kind of difficult to, like today, where I'm at at the moment, it's a beautiful day of light breeze and low humidity sunny, gorgeous. Now, I, I don't know how many of those kind of days I forfeited because I had to be indoors practicing or teaching or whatever. So now I have an opportunity to do my interview here instead of like in the basement. I have found that to be pretty rewarding. But no, I'm not going to like suddenly start painting or not writing poetry just yet or you know, <laughs> anything like that. But I'm still very active performing and playing uh, of course, with the common, uh, with the well-known current limitations, been had such a profound effect on so many people in the art. Very sad to 
see and witness it. Again, you know, I have the benefit of being at that stage in my career where if I don't have a gig tomorrow, it's not going to like completely derail me. But if I were in my 20s trying to get a foothold, that's tough. Yeah, yeah. I'm hopeful that enough people will do the right thing so that we can really get this thing under control and get back to some semblance of normal operations, whatever that is. Yeah, I know it's it's certainly rocked the world, but especially the arts, because everyone's sort of having to recalibrate to an extent. Well, I, I have friends that were in very respectable positions in the industry, say, that have already found new professions. Matter of fact, one of my friends became a music therapist. Oh, yeah, small went to world. School, went to school and got all these degrees and certifications and all this and just said, you know, I can't, I, I can no longer be a musician and make a living. Hmm. So I need to do something different to make a living and we'll see what happens to the music. No choice. So uh, that kind of, it could be dramatic. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, there's another side to that is that the public in, in general has been deprived of experiences in the arts. They can't go out and, you know, do stuff, you know, during the, the shutdown especially. And I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed, and I, I suspect it's, it's ultimately fear-based, but some of the behavior that I've been witnessing in our society is stuff that would never have been imagined, even like pre-pandemic. It seems like there's things that people are willing to say and do that are just born of this time. So it's kind of like, I know it's very complex, but it's uh, part and parcel of, of, you know, the deprivation that goes along with a pandemic. Yeah, it's certainly challenged people and pushed people to their limits. I Yeah, and it's understandable. I'm not saying that it's, uh, that they're bad people necessarily. It's just the isolation is hard. You know, human beings by nature are social animals. Mm -hmm. So the idea of being isolated is really trying. For, for everybody, I'm sure. Yes, very true. So anyway, we're going to switch gears. If you could have dinner with any creative person, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you have for the meal? I know you sent me that question. I should have thought about it more. But off the top of my head, two people came to mind. One was Beethoven and the other was Charlie Parker. And there's a word that I very seldom use because I don't wish to devalue its meaning by overuse. But in my opinion, at least, Beethoven and Charlie Parker were geniuses. And, and that's, a, that's, again, that's a word I don't apply to too many people. But I'd like to have dinner with both of those guys to just see, get, get some insight into what kind of people they were. I, I think I know them quite well as artists, but what is a person who has that, that rare genius trait, what are they like? What, how do they see the world? And I'd ask them about, I wouldn't ask them so much about their music, actually. I'd ask them, like, the question you just asked me, like, what do you like to eat? How do you feel about this? Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. What do you like to do outside of music? You know, I, I, I would do a podcast with them, right? Oh, that'd be amazing. Now, for Beethoven, in both cases, I'd want to have something that they like to eat. Beethoven, I'd probably have, like, have some Wiener Schnitzel or something like that. <laughs> And, uh, of course, I don't know what he likes to eat, but Charlie Parker, I think we could we could throw down on some soul food, you know. Yeah, I, I know I'd take him to an all-night joint and get him fried chicken and waffles. That's that's what, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, I, I would be interested in, in the ordinary side of those people. 
because I know that they're, although they're geniuses, they're ordinary people. That's, that's what people, people still ask me, my neighbors still say, but what do you really do? You know, I see you carrying that base around, but like, what, what's your job? You know, and they see me out mowing my lawn and they can't put that together. Like this guy travels all over the world, plays all these people, blah, blah, he's done this and that. What's he doing mowing his lawn? Is it, you know, well, I mow my lawn. I brush my teeth, you know, (laughs) but that's what I'd want to know from those gentlemen is who, who are you? Not not like what's your music like. I I kind of know that. What why do you think you have these gifts or what you know? No. What's your musical insight? No. Like, do you like sports? <laughs> you know. Yeah. You ever yeah, try? Yeah. If, if, do you play chess? You know, like whatever. That's the kind of stuff I'd like to know if I could have dinner with them. I I agree. I think those those would definitely be questions on my list too. So one final question, what does it mean to you to live a creative life? Wow. I guess I could offer a simple answer. To find ways to make the best of everything. To find creative ways to contribute, to give, to 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 give to to contribute to our society. Mm-hmm. That takes creativity whether you're in the arts or not. What if you're a garbage collector? You know, how do you, how do you wrap your mind around that to be of service? people and how do you contend with the way that may be regarded in our society you have to kind of like have a perspective that's creative that you know kind of has a handle on i I think one problem we do have in our society is people will often ask you what do you do but they don't want to know who are you and we're not necessarily defined by what we do for all I know, the guy that picks up my garbage tomorrow morning has a PhD in neuroscience. I mean, how? I mean, it's not likely, but it's certainly possible. So, but yeah, that, to me, it's sort of like Freudian in a way. But like, if you think of it this way, when you're in the womb, you've got it made. Room service for meals, <laughs> warmth, comfort, nurturing, yeah, everything's provided, and you're just grooving. You're just in there. Laying up in there, thinking, ah, boy, this is great. Oh, I love this. Then birth happens, chaos. Bright lights, people screaming, all these machines, you know, people grabbing you. They completely bust your groove the minute you're born. And from that point on, you're, you're in a struggle to find your way through this mess we call life. So living a creative life is finding some sense of purpose some sense of what I call contentment, and some sense of service. That, to me, is being really creative, because you were born into chaos. I don't know that everybody looks at it that way, but that's how I see it. It's so important to find purpose, help others, and just do your best, you yeah. yeah, I mean, to me now, service takes on so many uh, subtle contexts, and I just feel good to be to be somebody who my next door neighbor can come to me and say, I'm going to be out of town for three days. I wonder if you'd mind taking in my newspaper and mail and just sort of keep an eye on things for me. That just makes me feel great. Even greater that they would even ask me, that they would think, well, here's a guy that can help, would be willing to help. That's creativity because, you know, I have played in Carnegie Hall and I have heard standing ovations and I don't need that to feel creative and to feel whole, and to feel like I'm navigating the chaos in a way that makes me feel useful, purposeful, of service, and content. 
Very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. And listeners, please be sure to check out Todd Coolman's podcast, The Cool Toddcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Thanks. And thank you for this opportunity, Tim. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Like the show? Have a question? Stop by the Facebook and Instagram pages. Links are in the show notes or search for a creative piecemeal podcast on social media and click follow for all the latest.